Welcome. I'm all by myself tonight. I feel very sad. We were going to talk about pirates, which was going to be cool because we were going to start with like eye makeup. Oh, eye makeup and stuff. We're going to do that when Kiltz gets away from the pirates, I think. I mean, I, maybe she's suggesting to follow the code. Maybe those guidelines aren't getting her off this time. We're not sure, but wombats are probably involved. We could, we could, we could see whether the cards can tell us. Oh, wait, I, I, I was promising I was going to talk about tarot cards, but these, these seem to be a little bit different. I think I, well, I see, hmm, maybe a, a former president of ours. Oh, wait, which one is that? I'm, I'm not sure about that. I think, I think there may be Lauren Southern in here, which, ooh, well, that one's my favorite one. I think this suggests, well, since it's, you know, it was Milo's birthday yesterday, we can do a birthday stream for him and hope that we learn a little bit more about why tarot cards are actually playing cards. Welcome to the Mosaic Arc. Pirates took kilts away, um, and she let me know this morning <laughs> she wasn't going to be able to to be here right now. I was like, I don't know what I'm going to do. I, I I can't stream by myself, can I? Uh, well, I you know, I kind of remembered I used to be able to do this, like talking to myself for ages and ages and ages, all about Tolkien and medieval history and such, and then only getting your reactions later. Well, tonight at least I know. I got five people with me, so welcome. And I promised in um, the you know promotional uh, material today that I was going to talk more about the tarot cards because I've been noticing that. I mean, look, it's like I got my headphones on just because I hope she shows up, right? It's like I've got I've got to have my comfort comfort um, items around me. Um, I've been noticing in the clips that we've shared, um, particularly one where it said is tarot magic that. Getting more pushback on my social media than on kind of pretty much anything else. So clearly this is a topic that people have questions about and would like to hear me ramble on in professorial mode for some extended period. I went to the library today and I actually like checked out a book from hmm, the game section, which was in fact a history or maybe not even history, just a little picture book, but with some history of exactly where that deck that I was showing you last time came from, this Visconti Sforza deck. 
Um, and I'm looking forward to your questions. I'm looking forward to hearing what, you know, experience you have with, you know, thinking about the possibility of, I don't know, what, what are we talking about tonight? I'm, I'm, I'm really actually quite used to having kilts on the other end and, and helping me through this. So, um, one thing I, I, I will say, the tarot is in fact a card game. It's, that's all it was for hundreds and hundreds of years. Um, after this particular deck was made, and this is the this is the the famous one, the Visconti Sforza one. That uh, the the cards are actually in the Morgan Library collection in New York. And if the questions go that way, I can show you that that website again, and you know you can you can look through the pictures yourself. I shared today, and we'll put in the links um, a little video that the Morgan Library has itself on their own their own website, and they confirm what I was saying in the responses to people's questions these are playing cards and the you know there, there's some interesting back story about why you can find so many decks of tarot cards now and they have so many different drawings and pictures and everyone uses them for divination the short answer is that's silly they're playing cards and i will keep saying it they are playing cards they are no more magical than these cards with pictures of you know um conservative media personalities on them were back in 2016 they are simply differentiated cards and people like decorating them they they like decorating them in the same way that if you go to oh, i don't know your um alumni office I, I was digging around in you know decks of cards that i have down somewhere in, in our in our um games cabinets Right, and this this is a deck that was put out by, well, the place where I work, the University of Chicago, right? And we have some fairly boring pip cards, although they did try to do them with some fancy designs. But ooh, these these are actually quite nifty. Um, you know, fancy face cards. I I I I don't know who the artist is on these, but fairly nicely drawn, and the impulse to decorate them is clearly clearly quite strong now we could be asking questions about why people like making hand-sized fancy little um ornamental game pieces <laughs> and that that could be a question that we'd want to go to here's a this this one i find a little sinister for some reason the uh the queen of hearts has her mouth covered and as far as i know these came out before the masking thing was a thing so i don't i don't know why she's already veiled I'm gonna keep looking through these. Um, ooh, this 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 one I rather like. A jack is a gargoyle, right? That's one of the gargoyles that we have on campus. Here we are. Oh, maybe, I think they're taking them from like sculptures and things that are on our buildings. It is perfectly possible to start getting you know entranced at the idea that somehow I don't know. You could predict how well you're gonna do your, on your exam by which card I draw. Right, let's see. Am I going to do well on my live stream tonight based on playing cards? An eight of clubs, so what would that mean? Um, you could do some numerology off of it, get a little Pythagorean and such, and we could you know, do some scriptural exegesis. It's a playing card. <laughs> and you know, I think the, the really fascinating question to ask about why the, the, the tarot become something that people find um, I don't know, troubling to talk about, scary to talk about, 
is what what it is that's going on when we play with this kind of apparent randomized i mean they are randomized i don't think the thing is cards you unless you're cheating right they are truly random in a way maybe dice i don't know all of these are games they're all of them are in in a, in a sense something that we can start wanting to make bets on that we can figure out what they're going to do next let's see now i will say let's see they're magic if i got the eight of clubs there if i can cut this deck and get the same card it's the two of diamonds i'm not a magician <laughs> right and I, I, you know i think it, it is also interesting that um quote magicians right sleight of hand artists use these objects as something to wow people with right that, that you want to believe that you know i'm not controlling whatever it is i'm doing here Ooh, who was that a maga hat and i'd have to look at the key to figure out who all of these guys were i mean the key the key is rather interesting there we have a two of justice scales and such they're appealing right and they're appealing because they fit in our hands they're appealing because we like doing things with our hands i talked last time about how i can't do my i can't live stream i can't do my um reading i i i, I seem to be okay in class when i'm i'm talking and such like that but i usually have a pen in my hand i have to write stuff down somehow our embodiment makes us enjoy playing with things that are hand sized and fit in our hands and that then clearly feeds in some way into our desire to make it feel like we can, I don't know. I, I, I have had friends who do like wonderful, like close in card tricks games, Patrick Coffin, who I did a, a, a live stream with once you may remember, <laughs> um, does close in card tricks, um, for like table tricks and stuff like that. It's, it's, it's clearly a skill that we delight in seeing people be able to, you know, just misdirect us and, and catch our eyes going other places so i think there's there's an element of desire in the the fact of the cards and the fact of they're they're pretty pictures they're things that we can play with and then we have in fact um the tarot cards these cards obviously simply have the the pips and the face cards and when we make these um you know memory uh memorabilia of packs we like putting different images on the face cards and they make they make it feel like they belong to us in some way i'm sure most of you watching have played solitaire and you're taking you can't win at solid there's no you can't even cheat at solitaire <laughs> unless you cheat just the all you can tell from like the, the there's no way you can win cleverly in solitaire it's 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 utterly a game of handling the cards over and over and over again right um that there's there's almost no skill in it involved whatsoever because like if you move this one or that one i mean maybe a few forks in the road in terms of choices that you make but for the most part the only thing you're doing when you're playing solitaire is manipulating cards over and over and over again because it's somehow pleasurable for us to do that therefore one one of the things i said in our previous stream is it seems to me quite strange that these cards are so big because they're actually, I mean, they're, they're big for my hands. Maybe men find them easier to use, but they're actually fairly big to use as playing cards. And these are made to the size that the, the cards were originally, right? If you look at that video, um, I realize I really don't have anybody to talk to. I feel sad. I'll take these out. 
Um, if you look at the video that uh, the Morgan Library made, you can see the curators holding the cards. They're much fatter pasteboard than these, but they they must have been, you know, complicated to hold and such. They are the size of iPhones for a point, though. These are luxury items. The original tarot cards, and I've been reviewing for your your all sake exactly what the history is. These cards are the oldest ones surviving. Um, there's a there's some some other ones that we have a sort of a deck or a, a card or two from various decks, but this Visconti Sforza deck is the oldest near complete um, example that we have of these cards, which tends to suggest that the game itself develops in the region where these cards were made. And um, I will I'll continue to show you my props without knocking over my wine, hopefully. Um, This was the book that I was in the library to get today, and it's this Michael Dummett's his um, you know account of these Visconti sports ones. I'm proving I was in the library. It's got a library uh, call number on it. It's not my own book, um, and he he talks about how this deck was made, um, most likely around 1450. So think mid 15th 15th century. It's definitely made because we can tell that from the the heraldry on the cards and. Um, the, the history of, 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 of the cards, that it was made for um, the, the couple, the, the, the couple, Francesco Sforza and his wife, um, Bianca Maria Visconti, which is why we call it the Visconti Sforza. Uh, and there's other, there's another deck that seems to be made uh, with, by a similar painter and such that has been suggested was for their marriage. I tend to conflate that and think, this Visconti Sforza deck is known as being part of their marriage. Probably not, but what, what's interesting about the deck is it's clearly a luxury item. These are um, beautiful paintings in, in the style of, you know, the, the little miniatures that become famous in the, late, in the later Middle Ages for things like prayer books and illustrated, illustrated books of other kinds. They're, um, you know, beautifully beautifully decorated beautifully made in, in, incredibly appealing simply as as portraits and images it's a it's a luxury game that is played in the court it's a game of the nobility now that it's called um tarot is is a one of those linguistic sort of um transformations that the original terms when it is probably known as the game of triumphs so we, we know it as the game of triumphs which is trumps which is you know by way of the magic of telephone and and etymological change it becomes tarot but it's originally taroki it's probably it's triumphies the fancy cards in this this game are the trump cards so you know you see why oh my my trump cards fell over remember this guy the trump <laughs> They're trump cards with the same sort of playfulness and desire to, to put, you know, known figures, faces of your, maybe your relatives. I mean, th this is this is interesting that we have, okay, the Pope, but um, but the Emperor, the, the, the region in Italy where these come from had been, you know, contested over by the Holy Roman Emperors throughout the Middle Ages. So it's Northern Italy um, that the... Um, the emperor is a figure that is known to them as, a, a, you know, a member of the, the lordship that they have to contend with. Um, Sforza manages, although a conditorati, he's a, I can't say that word, 
and I'm nervous by myself. I don't like doing this by myself. I, I realize I've lost all my mojo <laughs> simply talking to my camera. Um, that uh, Sforza himself manages to get himself declared Duke by way of conquering the neighboring towns of Milan, right? So there's there's a, a kind of triumphalism in the, the series of pictures in the idea that we're going to, you know, have fancy trump cards in what is in effect simply a game of, of tricks and suits, right? Just like, okay, here, this is a 10 of cups. You can be deceived by the luxury of the, of the, the cards into thinking that they are meant to be magical, but they're, 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 it's more like, you know, fancy jewelry um, that you get to have trifles in play with. Uh, that doesn't mean they're completely innocent in any more than thinking these cards are completely innocent because, of course, people, maybe you shouldn't be spending your time playing card games, maybe, or solitaire. <laughs> maybe you should be um, using your prayer book instead of your, your frivolous, worldly, secular games. They are vanities in that sense, um, but they, are, they were not intended as magical objects. Is all of that clear? I will look at the chat. Yes, so Casey says, cards are games of chance and strategy. I can see how people thought they could tell fortunes with them. Well, what's interesting is, I mean, now we think we can tell fortunes with them, but for all of their, you know, what to look like, what looks like to us, these exotic pictures and series of images that, you know, that's supposed to be the moon, um, that we don't know what mean. It was hundreds and hundreds of years before people ever came up with the fantasy that these were intended as um, divination um, devices. That the, the first evidence that we have that anybody ever thought of tarot cards as, as something other than simply a, a, a fancy game um, comes in from the 18th century. It's late 18th century, and I'll give this to you very specifically so that you, you get the, uh, the truth of it. Um, most Americans and British readers probably associate tarot cards with fortune-telling and other occult practices, and such uses have indeed become widespread. Um, he's writing in the mid-80s, 1986, um, which was actually in college and which actually probably when I got these cards, right, so back, back in the day. Um, however, this was never their only use and was far from their original purpose. The first esoteric interpretation of tarot cards recorded in print appears in the eighth volume of a vast unfinished work of misconceived scholarship. Antoine Court de Gabelin's Le Monde Primitif of 1781. Uh, the author claims that tarot cards were invented by ancient Egyptian priests to conceal symbolic instruction in their religious doctrines in the guise of an instrument of play. De Gabelin moved in Masonic and Illuminist circles, and though he claims originality for his idea, he provides evidence that it may already have been current in those circles. Okay, so blame the Masons. But they invent this, right? They're going out there and trying to find things that they can credit with, you know, antiquity. You can, you might as well say that we shouldn't be worrying about the temple, the Solomonic temple, because the Masons think of themselves as Solomonic Masons. The, this, this sort of late 18th century desire, weirdly enough, against the Enlightenment, you know, praise of reason, but this, this late 18th century desire for occult knowledge particularly going back to Egypt, is the reason that these cards, which in, in, in the way that we have them in these early Italian decks, have nothing to do with Egyptian imagery. There, there's a little more that, that may, they may come in, but the, the, they're clearly 
um, European images. They're clearly European characters like the Pope. Um, and there is very little evidence whatsoever that this cycle of images had anything to do with Thoth or Egyptian Hermeticism at all. Um, which is interesting because there are people in 15th century Italy who are definitely interested in that kind of knowledge. Pico della Mirandola, for example, reading the Kabbalah and trying to, in his oration on the dignity of man, suggests that um, you know all systems of knowledge and philosophy are Christian, which is usually considered a bit of a sleight of hand to you know do some kind of Platonic Hermetic philosophy. There was plenty of you know opportunity potentially in the in the fifteenth century for people to make cards that had that kind of imagery on them. These don't. They they simply don't. They're they're decoration for a series of trumps in a trick taking game, right? Um, alongside de Gallardin's own essay on the subject, he includes another by Louis Raphael Lucris de Foyer, Comte de Melay which agrees with him in general, but differs in many details, and in particular describes a method of divining with the cards. In any case, the occult interpretation of tarot originated in France during the second half of the 18th century. And I mean, we could potentially get into a whole, um, you know, a whole discussion, which certainly Kiltz and I intend to, <laughs> you know, the sort of long journey we're on is in um, the, you know, I think the disentangling of the occult from the liturgical, definitely, because that, that's, that's a feature. Um, but one of the things that I do know about from reading, for example, Francis Yates on the art of memory, on the Rosicrucians, on the Elizabethan uh, um, uh, fascination with the occult and so forth, is over the course of the 17th and into the 18th centuries, we have the origination of the, 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 the quest for ancient sacred wisdom, like with the Rosicrucians and so forth. The tarot has nothing to do with any of that until the late 18th century. The, there, it's, it's certainly true that there are occult traditions and, and efforts to, you know, talk with angels and, and, and so forth like that. The tarot of itself, though, is never mentioned in, in, those, in those circumstances. And as um, Dumet, Dumet, um, very, I'm saying all those French names, right? Um, as Dumet rightly points out, we do have evidence, um, you know, condemnations of them as playing cards from the 15th century in context in which if, for example, this Dominican preacher, he says, um, uh, none, no, no earlier references to the tarot cards give any hint of occult use or anything like that. And he says, a great many speak explicitly of the games played with them and none give a hint of any other use other than playing cards. Two of the writers would undoubtedly have mentioned any occult associations had they known of them. Um, an anonymous 15th century Dominican preacher who vehemently denounces tarot cards, regular cards, and dice in a sermon against gaming, and the 16th century Ferrari, Ferrari's poet Alberto Lolio in his mock serious verse diatribe against the game. If they had, I mean, Dimmitt's argument being here, if these 15th and 16th century preachers against the vice of gambling and playing cards had known that these are also used for divination and, you know, like astrology was or something like that, they would have said so. So we can be fairly confident that until de Ghibelline in the late 18th century decides to dress up a local game with, you know, fantasy effects for it, 
these were simply playing cards. Now we could we could talk about you know what happens you know subsequently and why are there all all those decks that you know people are using to do um, you know divination with now, but that that goes back to my original thinking about why do we take what are in effect completely ordinary objects and delight in pretending that we can do things with them other than you know outwit each other in a, in a game. Right, so t Casey asked, so the tarot was a game designed to celebrate victory. Yeah, I mean, there, you are, it, it's like bridge, but with extra special fancy cards that trump any suit played. That's, they're literally trump. So if you've played bridge, which I have only rarely, because I'm not really very good, <laughs> um, but you know, most of the decks that were around me when I was growing up were my grandmother's double decks for whatever, she played a lot of bridge, right? Um, and when you're playing bridge, one suit will be designated trumps and people will go around and bid over, you know, whether or not they're going to take as many tricks and such. In tarot, the trump cards can do that. They can literally just trump whatever trick, whatever tricks are being played. Now, Duma also explains that the fool card is an interesting card um, because it was, it was in fact kind of an anti-trump. It was not one that could trump, but it could, you know, you could play it and avoid having to play another card that you didn't want to lose or something like that. So it's, it's kind it's not a joker so much as just a wild card that gets you out of trouble. So another term for the fool card was called the excuse, right? It's, it's, oh, I, I'm, I'm playing this, this dummy card. In effect, it's, it's a kind of dummy card. Okay. Um, Yeah, Mike 1000 says, that's what wide road sleeves are for, cheating with very large cards. Aha, we've solved it, right? Because of course, in, in the fashion in the day, they'd have those those giant sleeves. So these these would fit in your sleeves and you could cheat that way. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, so Mel, Mel, Mel is mainly making exclamations. I'm going to have to get her in. See, one day, maybe you know, my next live stream, we should figure out, in, well, next... The next time I'm on my own, I'll set this up so you guys can come in and we can play cards together. That would be fun. Um, yes, Casey's saying second half of 18th century fantasy. That does sound Masonic. Yes, so consider that the 18th century. We it's 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 delightful to realize that they're trying to think of themselves as you know the age of reason, while they're in fact also the age of making secret societies and and subverting you know rational hierarchies and coming up with ways to game the system constantly and there's de gabeline in the, the the french the french court i mean he's he's one of a number of trickster characters that are out there in the period um, my favorite is casanova because i've read more of his diary and he's he's <laughs> you know getting arrested in venice for indeed trying to seduce the convent the movie with heath ledger and it was moderately oh sort of i guess historically accurate i know the costumes are beautiful this is the court the aristocracy is incredibly corrupt in in the 18th century we knew that um they are i you can see de gabeline in 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 the in the gaming room right they're also doing things like setting up casinos obviously it's casanova if you read enough of his diary you're going to find a lot of that kind of um pastime imagine them they've they've got their fancy cards and here comes this hanger on in the court saying, ooh, but I've got the secret to what you can really do with those cards. And, and, and you know, and guess what? It's, you know, ancient Egyptian wisdom. 
<laughs> Bob, yes. Age of Reason is just a way to change which supernatural power is acceptable. Yes. They were, they, there's a, talking about my, you know, magic card and sleight of hand, they make a big sleight of hand with our entire culture. And I think, I think that's why I'm, I'm interested right now simply in defending the, the tarot as, um, you know, a, a, it was a European game. Now, what Dumet um, explains is there were, um, he, he does, he does, we do seem to have, there is some, does seem to be some truth in saying that some of these games come into Europe from elsewhere. I mean, the problem is we don't, tarot itself, the addition of the trumps is a European, probably Ferraris or Milanese invention, right? So it's saying like, you've been playing um, checkers with your particular playing pieces and someone comes along with a new way of doing a board game with squares on it and some extra pieces, not chess, because we know that we know that they're Islamic chess chess sets from from earlier. Dumat does talk about how um, it's likely that the, the playing cards as such are an Islamic invention. Obviously, you're not in Islamic context going to get picture cards. <laughs> right, face cards, they, they would be designs um, of some sort. Um, he says, trick-taking cards, trick-taking games almost certainly arrived at the same time, the late 14th century. Um, such games, owing nothing to European influence, were commonly played in Persia and India. So it's an Asian tradition of, of game, game playing. Um, but tarot cards were a European invention, and so was the idea of trumps. So the tarot, strictly speaking, with the trump cards, and these pictures is completely European. And if you're you know, looking for significance in the imagery that they have, de Gebelin's suggestion that you have to look to Egypt is completely off. It's, it's completely wrong. These are um, looking through something like the Wheel of Fortune. We know this from the manuscript tradition. I mean, things like there's a famous um, manuscript of the, the, the verses that Carl Orff used in the Carmina Burana, right? The, the songs of the students and O Fortuna, which you may know. Um, the, the Wheel of Fortune image is a, is a familiar one from the manuscript tradition. I've got the papist here. I'll save that one for a second. Um, things like, um, you know, justice. These are, these are images that show the different virtues, justice, temperance, fortitude. Um, it's interesting, this one with the chariot, the figure on the chariot, but a star, they're personifications of, 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 you know, this one's temperance, but they're not, you know, if, if you're looking for mystical significance, I don't know, maybe the lovers, but that's a, I mean, that's sort of Cupid there that fits with the 15th century inclusion of classical uh, characters in their secular art. Um, here's the sun. I, I'm sure if you've if you've encountered um, tarot cards in more recent decks, people love. I mean, they love making sets of pictures, and I think that I think is honestly the 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 greatest appeal of most of the the decks that are out there. That people like having this series of what is a uh, sort of appealing artistic problem of making all of this imagery. Now we can get to why people like imagery and what we do with it and 
why then you end up wanting these these things to mean something but the the images themselves like this was this is called the angel card it's usually called judgment now but it's it's the the um the last judgment and the the people rising up from their their graves uh the hanged man dumet talks about how this one is usually considered a lot more mystical and weird and some of you are familiar with the uh the photograph from 9-11 that is said to have looked like this card. Uh, this is less appealing than, than than those interpretations make it. It's probably more like showing a, a pirate being hung, for example, in Pirates of the Caribbean, which we were supposed to be talking about tonight. Uh, because it in the uh, the older um, naming of this card, it's the traitor. Um, so it, it's it's showing the, the punishment for uh, treason. Um, death is a familiar figure in the late Middle Ages, dance, the dance of death and so forth. Um, so the only, the only card that's actually truly kind of spectacularly strange is this one, which is the Papist. And my colleague Barbara Newman, who's a professor at Northwestern in English, has done a very interesting essay. I, I might like treat you to a, a link to where to find it <laughs> in the in the description on how for the the region in which these cards were made this may represent an actual character who was um kind of interesting for claiming that she you know was endowed with the holy spirit so the gigal gilgamites uh in that case it does make a very interesting claim about local politics but um, whether or not there's, you know, an actual mystical tradition of the, the papist, no. I mean, not in, not in the terms that more recent, uh, you know, handbooks on the meaning of all the different tarot would suggest. The, Casey's saying, the original Gamergate. The tarot was the first cultural phenomena to be converged. Oh, in, in the sense of taken over. Yes, I think sort of converged and taken over by the Masons to, to do something that it, it was games and, and they made it into something of different significance. One of the things that Dumet um, points out about the Visconti Sforza is, it, interestingly, the, 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 the difference with the tarot. Okay, so they have the trumps. And the other thing that tarot will have is um, in, the, in the face cards, right, the, the, the um, court cards. So regular playing decks seem to have only had the male characters, the male cards, so kings, ja uh, knights, and jacks. What the tarot add are the queens. <laughs> and so that our modern playing cards now have queens instead of three male figures is thanks to the tarot having these female characters. And that you actually have, he, I think he went through and counted, it's like a balance of male and female characters in these tarot cards, which makes it interesting if they were for couples. My my vision of the way these cards were used is it obviously is an ability, obviously in, you know, the kinds of games that men and women would play together. They play chess a lot in the Middle Ages. Chess is considered a very erotic game in the in the medieval period. Um, and there's, you know, allegories and such about what it's like to men and women playing chess. It's it's not it wasn't considered like the kind of competitive game that we we have now in international tournaments and competitions that they were court games that you play for you know um good good uh good fellowship and and romance right so 
these cards this is this is i think my favorite or my galadriel uh, or you know swordsman swordwoman uh desire comes out in this one the queen of swords is is quite quite magnificent in her armor um so th this is th they're very they're they're very uh uh feminist if you want in in the sense that they have both male and female characters in them okay so that you know you you have the the i sorted these out so that they're in groups like here are all the queens we have the the knights on their horses and the jacks or the pages in their cloaks that they're and then the the um, suits, they look exotic to us, but again, they're, they're, um, it's more, they're exotic because these are, a no, you know, high uh, end art project with swords and coins and rods and, and cups, which appropriately for our, our, our pigeon, um, theming here the, the the cup in this one has a, a a dove on the top of the fountain right so here's our our fountain of it could be a fountain of life but it's basically a cup right and then um you know this one will say my love and so forth you can you can see why you'd be having these as um sort of like my grandmother and all of her different bridge decks which had decorated the, these didn't have decorated backs as far as i know it's like decorating the backs of your cards when you're doing a bridge set okay. have i persuaded you is everyone persuaded <laughs> they're playing cards are we are we convinced that these this was actually a game that people played in the court and they're fancy and decorated because courtiers can you know, courts can hire expensive artists to make beautiful luxury um, vanities. Yes? This is a not, this chat is not responsive enough as a class. Somebody say yes, and I'm, 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 I'm still live, right? Okay, so if we want to play um, the actual games, Dummett, the same one who wrote the book I got from the library, has a book on um, different games from different regions that are played with tarot and this book I've actually been carrying around since college um, still hoping to find someone to play actual tarot games with he, he also includes in in this book some pictures of what more recent decks looked like and you can see the trumps the trumps were so like insignificant as meaning images that 17th and 18th century printed decks would have different cycles of images it's like you might and you could imagine doing a tarot deck in this in this game world with pictures of different places that you liked to remember. Um, this deck has different pastimes, sort of theater pastimes and things like that. Um, you know, they're trumps that are showing just scenes of daily life, like these. And that they they clearly became smaller and were be able to be more printed produced rather than hand painted and and so forth over the course of the period and that games the the other thing that he that's it's one that they're games but two that they're all very local um this book he includes games from um italy it's got the, the this um 
Scarto, which is an Italian game, um, Mitigati, French tarot games, Gros Tarot, Ottocento, a Sicilian Tarocchi, um, Tap Tarot, Point Tarot, Koenigsgrufen, Koenigsgrufen, uh, Sigo, Hungarian Tarot, Bavarian Tarot. That one of the things that was very interesting about these these particular games is that they're all very local that there'll be very local european traditions of playing i mean with you know ranges of what are called tarot cards but that the the, the gameplay is actually different from region to region so i mean when he when dummett wrote this book back in the 80s he was really hoping i think that people would be enticed to learn to play tarot and that's what i was talking about when i you know said you know, would you like to play tarot? Would you like to play tarot? Would you like to actually learn some different kinds of card games? I actually, I, I'm wondering whether anybody's watching there in Switzerland, if you guys are awake right now, um, knows the game, uh, is it Yas? There's a, there's a, um, a friend of mine taught me to play this game and I, now I need to learn how to spell it. J-A-S-S, uh, Yas. It's, a delightful different kind of game with tricks that has a completely different gameplay from anything I've ever played with our standard um, bridge poker cards that um, I, and I unfortunately only played it for a week when I was in Zurich once and and it was it was really fun there are games out there that we are missing because we don't know these these other traditions of, of play but Casey says the local nature of it reminds me of Monopoly being based on Atlantic City. And and the thing is that the, the desire to make sort of local sets, obviously, it's like we have Monopoly of Lord of the Rings Monopoly. Actually, that's a good example. So in Lord of the Rings Monopoly, there's a ring, <laughs> because of course there is, and it has a sort of trump effect on, on the gameplay. I, I tended to use that ring for the game of the rings that I play with my class on campus now I forgot what you do with the trump ring but it's it's like this extra piece that can change the gameplay and that's what the trump cards the tarot cards were actually originally for in the trick-taking games and then you know i still am waiting for someone to learn to play these games with me the 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 um the strategy and such with these sort of extra wild trump cards my guess is you could you know you could start making layers of complexity in you know, which trumps trump which, you know, rock, paper, scissors kind of problems. They, they, the, the, the trump cards in this deck seem to be in sets of the virtues, the, the celestial symbols, the, you know, the, the popes and the empresses and so forth like that. It, it, there's a, it, it, you know, kind of like Magic the Gathering, I guess, right? What if you took the tarot cards and played something more like the, the complex games that now people play with... Go Decks that are clearly meant to be card games. Trying to fortune tell with tarot is like would be like trying to fortune tell with your Magic the Gathering game, games, right? Um, yeah, the images on the tarot cards could be locally unique to the region it was played. And that's why we say we're pretty sure that you know the game itself originates in the region where these cards are made because the early cards all look like this region. They fit with this northern Italian late 15th century um symbolic and and regional milieu right it's like the the emperor is on this just like the politicians are on this um deck of trump cards so 
Casey says, I'm persuaded to learn to play bridge. Well, I'm still not persuaded to learn to play bridge, but um, I'm, I'm, um, Annie says, yes, persuaded here too. Bridge or tarot? We will go with tarot. Annie says, yes, chess is not for the casual player. I learned at 12 not to play it with boys. <laughs> I, I, every so often I have this fantasy that I'll actually learn to play chess and I read, you know, Pendolfini, he's, he's a really good chess master. And I'll read these books and I'll think, you know, I have the, it, it, it's like, um, the shopaholic story I wrote about in early blog posts when she's talking about, can I buy that? Right. And she goes and she wants to buy a, a, a foil and a mask in a, in a thrift shop and say, can I buy that? If I bought the, the sword and the, and the mask, could I learn to fence? And then, you know, her fantasy goes up to playing, you know, fencing with Catherine Zeta Jones and, and so forth. And it's like, well, <laughs> you do need the equipment. I never got there with chess and, um, it, it's like that with my, my tarot cards, right? I wish I'd ever learned to play the games and I never got there. It's, it's like the desire to operate them, I think is, is very strong. You want them to be a meaningful something. And it's interesting that instead people ended up using them not for gameplay, but for storytelling, which is, I'm going to get there. I'm going to get to what I, I think is actually happening in quote, the divination that people do. Um, but I think it's, 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 it's like divination. It would be similar to trying to, you know, do divination off of a chess set, basically. Okay. Mike 1000 says, I'd love to learn tarot games. Yay. We're going to, somehow we're going to start a, a tarot club of, you know, we could, I, I'm, I'm intrigued by the idea of a Bavarian or Hungarian tarot. Uh, the, um, the Bavarian tarot. Maybe this is something I was, the Yas, 36 card German suited pack with four suits of leaves, acorns, hearts, and bells. Each suit contains an ace, a king, an ober, and an unter, and five numeral cards, six to 10. This sounds close to what I was playing that was called Yas. Anyway, they're worth, they're worth learning to play. Um, Dungeons and Dragons. I tried playing Dungeons and Dragons once. That was a total disaster as well. Okay, so they're card games. Now, why do, why does it become so convincing to have them count as, um, divination and any, anybody, anybody want to, any persuader regarding bridge? Oh, I was so happy to win. He married someone else 15 years later. No, no. <laughs> See, it's the chess, the, the romance of the chess game is, is, is perilous, right? Perilous to, to, to fall into. All right, so we have these cards. They're quite beautiful to play with. People get entranced at the idea that you can do something with them other than take tricks. And I mean, what's interesting, I think I love, I love card games in the sense that if I default to a game that I just like, you know, let's just have, let's just have some interaction. Let's just have some social interaction that isn't, you know, from my perspective, terrifically demanding. So I certainly not going to play poker. <laughs> I don't like, I don't like gambling, um, off of cards. If you're worried about that. Um, what I like is the social interaction and the, and the, the, you know, to a certain extent, the manipulation of, of the, the objects, my, my very favorite card game, you actually need two mat two decks to play it with, which is great. Um, is, um, rummy fun. 
or Rummy Cub. It, it turned into a, a, a game that one of my friends when I was growing up had little tiles with, and you can play it with a double deck, and it involves, it's basically gin rummy, but you lay down sets, and you can, you know, take from your hand and rearrange on sets, and the cleverness is in this sort of multiple rearranging and stuff like that I love. That I, that I think is, is a great game. Uh, rummy, gin rummy is um, pretty simple and, and fine if you just need, need something to get your family sort of handing cards around with. Uh, I had a, I had friends when I was, um, again, when I was growing up, same, same sort of year, 13, 12, 13, and we'd play hearts every night after swim practice. And it, it, you can feel that card play under those circumstances is imminently social, right? I, I think it's what, you know, the, the, the appeal of board games, you know, I'd say, raise your hand if you like playing board games. Who likes playing board games? Rummy Cube. It's Rummy Cube. It's, yeah, it was, it was like, um, it was called Rummy Fun or something like that. We're going to have to figure out what all these games are. I love uh, this level of board game stuff like Clue and Monopoly, not so much. Monopoly, I guess I, I like Clue best. There's a, there's actually an Egyptian version of Clue that I really, really like. I can persuade my persuade family members ever to play with me is Wadget, which has, you know, lovely designs and be it's beautiful to look at. Um, there's a, a great game that we have that comes in like a treasure chest, which is a, a kind of pirate game and you get to play with the ships on a map. And stuff. There is delight in the, 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 you know, the play of the pieces and the um, interactions that you have with each other as you're playing these games, I, you know, I can, I can, I'm, you know, it's, you sort of get sad in that situation that saying the tarot lost its gameplay and turned into this other kind of gameplay that's no longer about, um, you know, outwitting each other in terms of the sequences of cards that you're playing or collecting points or something like that. It got transformed into a different kind of game. And that that is sort of like, you know, what I what I'd like to imagine and, and, and consider with you now. Oh, Scrabble, Casey, yes, Scrabble. I used to be really really good at it, and then one of one of my family members started beating me at it, and then I couldn't win anymore, and then I hated it. No, <laughs> I I like Scrabble because I could usually win, and um, when you're up against someone who's really good at playing the pieces on the the uh, points and you, it's no longer just solving the anagrams yeah okay so scrabble we're good we're good on scrabble okay rummy cub was one went one with the tiles okay so how do you end up distorting what was in fact the thing is okay one i'm running out of space and two um you can you can wonder whether games like this are completely innocent or not because they are diversions they're not focusing on god they are um you know pastimes for the most part i think these are socially fairly uh important and calming um you know if you start gambling around them which obviously they do in the casinos and you're in you're in another level of difficulty but the the having some reason to gather together and and just pass time um you know whims whimsically that that feels to me fairly innocent. 
why do we end up trying to tell futures with them? Well, I think one, there's de Gabelin with his claim that there's a hermetic Egyptian wisdom hidden in them. And, you know, we'll, we'll sit there and meditate on the, the different traditions. But it isn't, it isn't him alone that makes the cards so popular. That, that takes not the 18th century, but the 19th century. And I think I've, I've talked to you some about the way in which everything weird comes out of the mid-19th century. And Kiltz and I have talked about the, the problem of industrialization and the problem of you know, our, our vending machine people and the um, way in which, particularly under the British Empire in the 19th century, everyone's you know, out there in the world being absorbed into this giant corporate replicable machine-made culture and therefore it is not at all surprising whatsoever that it's the same period again i think kilt and i've also talked about this to a certain extent it's the same period during which europeans start inventing all sorts of folk traditions the kilt <laughs> um it it it's it, it's like the the you know the enlightenment yields the romantic period with the poetry and the you know mystical woo woo and stuff like that but the the 19th century we think of it you know as modernity and you know the rise of capitalism and the answer with communism and you know the the all the isms and and so forth the 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 mechanization and the um scientification and, and so forth it the exact there's always there's a shadow side of all of that triumphalist imperialism and it is the occult it is it's it's this fascination with maybe i would say speculating out loud as i am on my own right now um and and you can i just like kilts is going to watch this and she's gonna, she's going to know so many things that i'm not suggesting to you so just to take, take take professor professor's blank bland version of this with the occult it's it's like the 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 necessary response to the mechanization from the mid 19th century you have all sorts of things like mesmerism you know the the mag, mag the magnetic becomes the me, the mesmerizing um we have I mean, rise by the late 19th century, you know, things, things like the Theosophical Society, the, the Emersonian transcendent poets, the 19th century is, is bloody weird, right? It's, it's, it's one great cascade of, of spiritualists and revivalists and therefore the occultist. Now, for the most part, they're making it all up, right? And you can be horrified by all of this. I mean, I, you know that I do believe in angels and demons, so that that that's a feature of a feature of what we need to be concerned with. But for the most part, this fantasy version of the lost folkways, the lost, you know, secret wisdom, the you know the the witchcraft that was all—it's all fantasy. It, we have no continuous record of any of it from. The middle ages to the 19th century and that's why I, I sort of land so hard on saying the tarot cards were playing cards until de gabelin tries to make them into something else in the late 18th century and then in the late 19th century particularly from dumit says around 1880 and which sounds like a good a good date from around the the last decades of the 19th century the tarot get scooped up into this sort of general fervor of 
desiring to find, well, fairy, right? And if you're worried about the tarot being, you know, sort of magically infused, you're my, you're my Tolkien audience, right? Recognize that, that Tolkien's desire to find the folk stories of the fairy world, the fairy stories that he grew up with, Andrew Lang is publishing all of his collections of fairy stories around the time that people start looking for the mystical in things like the tarot cards. Um, if you if you really want the sort of deeply and wonderfully and delightfully scholarly version of all of this, Ronald Hutton's history of modern magic, the modern magical tradition of this this sort of search for the occult is is really excellent. Um, he is. One, what's interesting about Hutton, he's a professor in England, very, very, you know, senior and scholarly, and um, has written, you know, deep studies of the Tudor and Stuart periods. Very excellent books on things like, uh, his one called The Stations of the Sun, which is all of the folk traditions that are associated with the Christian calendar in the, the 17th and 18th centuries. Um, what's interesting about Hutton, despite all of that, is he grew up a pagan, right? And not in the not in the the you know accidental atheist way that maybe people do now but uh actually with communities of people that were describing them self-describing themselves as pagan in what they wanted to believe was this ancient tradition but which hutton in his rigorous scholarly way shows was all invented in the late 19th early 20th century and he's very very good at showing the the you know the main characters in the development of, of many of these traditions and understands I mean he understands it as as a sort of historian of, of religions and the you know the both a historian and someone who's very interested in the way religiosity manifests itself in our um, desires that it, I, I'm not going to say it's just innocent because that's that's not quite where I'm going but that there is a um, liturgical urge in a lot of it, and in the in the bad way. And you all know if you've read Centrism Games that I've I've studied some of this to be able to write that Lady Priest um, sec segment with with my co-author Cheryl. Um, that the desire to create rituals and 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 riff off of them, right? Some of what we used in that Lady Priest episode draws from some of like modern witches ritual making starhawk and, and so forth it also of course drew off of the um satanic temples abortion ritual which is weirdly enough kind of tame because <laughs> it's mainly a i believe in science and i'm affirming myself and i you know i've made this decision it's it's it there's they're trolling with the satanic temple part, but they're also, you know, authentically trying not to be in any way religious with their claim that we are affirming ourselves as rational beings or something like that. This is the sickness of modernity. And and, and if you all want to know, sort of like Kilt and I keep, we, we're, not, we're not great at giving a manifesto to why we're doing the mosaic arc. We're trying to draw you in and keep you with us long enough so that you get a, a picture of what it's like to be in this in this imagery. That one of the things that we're really worried about that modernity is doing is, um, you know, the, the kind of mixing and matching of, of traditions that means that we're basically all insane, 
that, that we're not actually grounding ourselves uh, properly in, you know, the piles of books are getting quite perilous, right? Um, we're not properly grounding ourselves in the, the, the revealed truth of the stories that, you know, were given by God and therefore not able to judge when something is angelic versus when something is, um, you know, sort of LARPing or worse, right? That, that it's actually attracting um, some of the, the, the fallen angels. I'm wondering whether there's questions now. Fuzzy Bear, why doesn't she wear her, gla her glasses? glasses? Um, I'm not sure what, what they're all talking about there. Um, Casey, does triumphal imperialism lead to the occult or vice versa? That's a good question. There we could find something that's like a Trumpy and, and imperialist. Um, I mean, you know from our work on Draco Alchemicus, and Casey is one of our poets, so she's deep in, deep in, the, in the problem problematizing here, that with Draco Alchemicus, we're trying to show the, this imperial impulse, this desire to be part of this draconate, um, uh, dracon draconic, um, the, the dragon empire of the pharmacy and the, you know, the global uh, connections and maritime trade and, 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 and so forth. Um, that it has its own occult element. Milo, right before I was, I was um, going live right now, was posting in his, in his channel about how many Americans are on antidepressants. It's like one in 10. How do, how do you end up with a population of one in 10 people on antidepressants? I'll, I'll have some wine now. <laughs> the, 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 the science that we are all participating in constantly, um, everything about the flattening the curve was about a gambling game with statistics. And, you know, if, if you know, we need a certain percentage of the population to be un, in, under these conditions so that this other thing can happen, it's straight up gambling constantly comes out of the 18th century it's the it's the gambling games that they play in in the card games that Casanova and company are involved in to try to game the system all I mean I, I you know can say this flat out somebody's going to clip this and you know hooray but modern science is gambling in the sense that it's statistics it's it's trying to decide what is the the pop you know the probability of x outcome constantly, particularly modern medical science, because you recognize that it's always setting you up for, if you don't do this, you have an X percentage of Y, right? If, if you come down with this kind of illness and you have this sort of medication, 60% of people get better. And you pay your money into the, the, you know, the drug system and the surgery system and the hospital care system, and you hope you get a nice outcome. Um, so is insurance, right? Insurance comes out of the 19th, the 18th century gambling practice, right? It's statistical. If you, the, the insurance, but then the insurance companies are gambling on you. Uh, you are a certain age, you have certain habits. The actuary tables will suggest how likely you are to live and they will suggest a rate that they're willing to pay on the gamble that you don't have to ever claim it. <laughs> right, so the, 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 the occult is kind of folded in already to the scientific financial system that we are apparently not meant to consider demonic at all. It's demonic um, because it is also trying to play with knowledge of the future 
So you're worried about playing divin, you know, cards and making the, these are pretty innocent and 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 pretty um, mild compared to buying health insurance. Consider that. Yes, Casey, science. Science is worse than gambling is trying to be predictive. It's literally divination. Yes. When it's, what's the forecast tomorrow? I'll, should I ask my astrologer or weather.com? <laughs> right? Uh, Mike 1000, the absurdity of the blind watchmaker and people's attempt to apply it to everything may be created. Buzzsaw Bear, wish I would have joined earlier. Well, happily I'm recording and it will be up tomorrow. Um, Mike 1000, something irrational is a corrective or response. Swiss chard. At this point, I'm more likely to rely on leeches and herbs than modern medicine, apart from surgery. And at, rightly so, right? That the, the one of our our big project in both the Mosaic Arc and Draco Alchemicus is to help us become aware of the degree to which we've all been sucked into this magical thinking under the guise of medicine and science and you know predictive predictive practices. So. Now I hope I can convince you from the opposite direction that whatever we do with these these pic picture these picture cards is drawing more on our our simple storytelling creativity and it's far more innocent uh, again than buying health insurance. Um, professor, and it's all bad statistics, inaccurate, not truthful. Indeed, I mean we've been watching Vox has been talking about this and, and the scientific literature is, is learning the degree to which, um, well, particularly with the, the, um, flatten the curve science, uh, that those studies are all based on making sure that the comparand of risk is always going to suggest that the risk is, is appropriate. Control groups, not really a feature <laughs> in those because they're trying to gamble with getting people to, pay them money for a medicine that they didn't need in the first place. Um, and, and the more we learn about that, the, um, you know, the sort of is science, it, it questioning the science, should we question the science? Well, is science questioning the science? Questioning the science is science. We don't, we don't, um, as a culture right now have enough distrust of the degree to which the scientific method is based on the desire, still based on this desire to tell the future. Buzzsaw bear. Oh, no tarot cards. Well, we're about to, okay, so what do you do with them if you're divinizing with them, right? Now, one is you have, you know, you could, the Ching is just with sticks, right? So the, the, the kind of worry that you're taking something that has been imbued with powers well people do divination off of anything which is the the sort of propensity that we have as wait what's the weather tomorrow okay look it up right meteorology is one big divinatory exercise and and you know it's going to be hot tomorrow it's going to be cold tomorrow we believe we we look this up even my mother spends a lot of time checking the weather right and and i'm i'm positive she never thinks about it as divination she thinks about it as science because she wants to know the future about the clouds. Okay, now we know climate science has its own problems with divination and modeling and projecting into the future, but we, we, um, I, I think it, I think it's interesting which, which of these divinatory methods we find neutral 
or scientific and which of them we find scary and, and problematic. I Ching is sticks. I used to play pickup sticks. Ah, yeah. I Ching is, it's just, it's, yeah, it's, or you can, it's broken and not broken, right? So it's a binary that you then look up the, um, the patterns in. I think I did, I, I, I played with I Ching once as a exercise in a Chinese course I was taking and I was, I'd been the empress and I'd gotten, my, my house had lost the mandate of heaven. And so for the last day of the game, I was, I had to be a different person, and so I played the I Ching to try to figure out why it, it was. It was an interesting sort of story problem of it's it's it, you know like I don't know games and I was a little entertained today in Social Galactic to, to be having people telling me that you know tarot is dangerous when we're literally a gaming where Social Galactic is set up by someone who designs games. And I haven't played any Vox's games because he never says what they are and I don't know what they are. Somebody tell me in the chat, maybe. Um, but, you know, Dungeons & Dragons is all based on dice. Uh, I know that. Um, you know, role-playing games are all based on dice and you're, and you're setting yourself up. You, you're making decisions off of randomized information that the, the play is, is giving you. Um, what are we doing when we are playing games like that? Well, I think, based on my limited experience of Dungeons and Dragons and watching other people play these things, people like stories. They like they like being in a story. They like, I mean, the, the, I am assuming Dungeons and Dragons got as popular as it did because oh, you know, you have a dungeon master who can write a scenario, write a world into which people can play. I, I confess, a lot of my knowledge of Dungeons and Dragons comes. Excuse me, from that um, comic, the web the web comic that was made with stills from Lord of the Rings. Now I'm going to be blanking on what it was called, where um, it's written as if it's a it's a campaign, and the the characters go off script of the campaign, and I think Legolas shoots. Um, spoiler alert! I think Legolas shoots Gollum on the in the river, and then you know, and and Aragorn wants to go for the treasure and stuff. <laughs> It's like, what do you do when your own, when, you know, the game play goes off script and the dungeon master can't get its, you know, the, the, the players to go with what he is, you know, laboriously set up. We love this kind of structured, meaningful story world. Now, I got 10 of you watching. Everybody put your hand up if you've played those games and found yourself identifying with your character and playing yourself into that role and becoming part of that story, right? We like that. Social Galacta was set up by someone who designs games. Yes, exactly. Um, the Farmer's Almanac has gotten weirder. I've gotten more sensitive. There we go. Yes, people bet, people bet on the weather too. Yes, which, I mean, Buzzsaw Bear, I, or no, Mike, 1000. If they're betting on the weather, they're betting on the predictions that the meteorologists are making. That would be funny. Um, Annie, BSB, that's real stuff. Don't be mocking the almanac. We're all gonna get. We all need to get an almanac. All right. So I'm. I, you realize I'm. 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 You know, teasing you along to the place where you're gonna be okay with me doing a, a reading right off the off the tarot. Which, and I have another book here, but it's beside me. That if I if I if I pace myself correctly through this story that I'm weaving for you, either will make you delighted or blow your mind. And 
Mel better still be around because she's been reading this book. Um, what kind of impulse is it to be putting these random elements together in a story, to want to be part of that story, to want to find, and I think, I think this is, this is the Christian impulse. It's, it's Tolkien's impulse. It's the one that whenever I teach Tolkien, I'm, I'm always pointing to is the desire that people have to be in the story, right? And the scene that I love talking about is when Sam and Frodo are on the stairs of Tirith Ungol, and Sam realizes that he's in the story. They're, they're in the story that they've heard tell, right? They're in the same story as Baron and Luthien. They're in the same story as, as the Silmarils, because look, there's a Rendell up in the sky, and Frodo has this the vial of light that Galadriel has given him, and, and you, want, you want to find yourself in that meaningful pattern and, 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 and look for that story. Now, do we have, does our, do our lives have meaning? <laughs> Is there any way that we can know whether our lives have meaning? Oh, right, it's right next to me. You know that that's the answer. But why, right? This book is not about us. It, you know, in, in the sense that it was the Holy Bible, for those who are listening alone. Um, the Bible was, was obviously, you know, the older parts written thousands of years ago, the newer parts 2,000 years ago. And it speaks to us, but we have to interpret it to find out what, what it means for our life, right? So what, what do I say? How am I doing on this live stream? This is a little bibliomancy, but oh, hmm. Psalm 24, a prayer for grace, mercy, and protection against our enemies. I picked a long one. I'm going to read the whole thing because I promised to read poetry on this too, right? To thee, O Lord, have I lifted up my soul. In thee, O my God, I put my trust. Let me not be ashamed. Neither let my enemies laugh at me, for none of them that wait on thee shall be confounded. Let all them be confounded that act unjust things without cause. Show, O Lord, thy ways to me, and teach me thy paths. Direct me in thy truth, and teach me, for thou art God my Savior, and on thee have I waited all the day long. Remember, O Lord, thy bowels of compassion and thy mercies that are from the beginning of the world. The sins of my youth and my ignorances do not remember. According to thy mercy, remember thou me, for thy goodness sake, O Lord. The Lord is sweet and righteous. Therefore, he will give a law to sinners in the way. He will guide the mild in judgment. He will teach the meek his ways. All the ways of the Lord are mercy and truth to them that seek after his covenant and his testimonies. For thy name's sake, O Lord, thou wilt pardon my sin, for it is great. Who is the man that feareth the Lord? He hath appointed him a law in the way he hath chosen. His soul shall dwell in good things, and his seed shall inherit the land. The Lord is a firmament to them that fear him, and his covenant shall be made manifest to them. My eyes are ever toward the Lord, for he shall pluck my feet out of the snare. Look thou upon me and have mercy on me, for I am alone and poor. The troubles of my heart are multiplied. Deliver me from my necessities. See my objection and my labor, and forgive me all my sins. Consider my enemies, for they are multiplied, and have hated me with an unjust hatred. Keep thou my soul, and deliver me. I shall not be ashamed, for I have hoped in thee. 
The innocent and the upright have adhered to me because I have waited on thee. Deliver Israel, O God, from all his tribulations. Now, in the monastic tradition of the Middle Ages, you would read that and you would recognize the Lord throughout as Christ. But how would you do that? How would you know that the Lord of the Psalms is, in fact, our Lord, Jesus Christ? And what would you think about, you know, the meaningfulness of reading that plea to God for protection and, and you know, for release from our sins? And the fact that, well, the second part of this book, talks about a competition over in, indeed how to read the scriptures. I didn't plan this, so this is, this is in my, for example, John chapter 10. Amen, amen, I say to you, he that entereth not by the door into the sheepfold, but climbeth up another way, the same as a thief and a robber. But he that entereth in by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the porter openeth and the sheep hear his voice, and he calleth his own sheep by name, and leadeth them out. And when he hath let out his own sheep, he goeth before them, and the sheep follow him, because they know his voice. But a stranger they follow not, but they fly from him, because they know not the voice of strangers. This proverb, Jesus spoke to them, but they understood not what he spoke to them. There's more about sheep. How do we know that Jesus, who is telling these parables, is the same as the Lord who's speaking in the Psalms. Now we're getting <laughs> now we're getting tricky because of course the people who made these cards did know the answer to this question that I'm I'm asking you. And it's um, one of the reasons I think that medieval imagery is so challenging for modern Christians because it works on these kinds of juxtapositions between the Old Testament and the New Testament, that the New Testament is in fact fulfilling the stories in the Old Testament, the prophecies, the, you know, Ezekiel seeing the, the chariot, chariot, where's my chariot? Where's my chariot? Ooh, I've mixed all my cards up. There's, oh, there's a, there's an empress, there's a hangman, that you're putting together what would feel like to many modern readers, two things that don't go together. And there's a mystery in between the two that you want to bridge, right? You want to say, if this is the sun, what does it have to do with judgment? Interesting, interestingly, let me find another set. I mean, no, actually, maybe I should do these randomly because that that's what it often feels like for modern readers. You're just sort of randomly picking things together. Okay, so I'm going to have to do this. There's a page with his cups and... The chariot, which is what I was looking for. <laughs> now, one of one of the interesting propensities that we have is, in addition to playing with objects, is to try to make sense of juxtapositions. Those of you who watch the bear streams know how much this happens, right? You're delighted by the idea that this thing looks like this thing, and these two things together are therefore meaningful. Now. Sometimes you can say, yes, they are. Sometimes you can say, no, that's an accident. That, that is a, a, you know, a juxtaposition that, in fact, came about randomly and therefore has no meaning. But our desire, interestingly, as human beings, is to find um, 
fulfillment in what we've seen previously. And in storytelling, this is the Chekhov's gun uh, principle, right? Um, if you read the arcade, let's see. If you okay, see, we can do this constantly in the Mosaic arc problem because we're saying, look, we have these images that come together. There's the arc of the covenant that Moses is constructed to build in the desert, in the, in the wilderness, that's carried into the temple, that then is seen again in the book of Revelation when the doors of the temple open and the woman is seen in the heavens um, crowned with crowned with stars and the moon at her feet and clothed in the sun. You can see how these images could be marrying very easily. And she is that ark. Is that nonsense? Or is that our putting together the pieces of the story, like Sam and his scene Arendel, and knowing that it's the same light in the file that Frodo is holding. God seems to have shown himself to us in this way, right? God has shown himself to us in the, the, the stories that are there of the Israelites in the Old Testament and in his incarnation and revelation of himself in, in the Gospels. And he does it in the stories that he tells us in the Gospels of see yourself in these sheep. See yourselves in the, the ones that the, the, the um, shepherd calls to. See yourself in these images and put them together and be able to reason them out and understand them. Casey, prefigurement, yes, it's a, this constant prefigurement. Now, what's interesting, this is a basic principle of storytelling, right? We find significance in prefigurement and fulfillment. And in the medieval tradition of exegesis, again, which the people who read these cards would be familiar with, um, you are rec recognizing, sorry, well, I, just, I just lost my thought. <laughs> you can't help me because you don't know what I was thinking. Uh, the, 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 in, the, in the medieval tradition of this, of this understanding of reading scripture, the, you, you, you know how, you, you have a system for recognizing the, the figure and the, and the realization. I mean, to a certain extent, that's what the New Testament is trying to show you how to do. Paul says, you know, look for the image of um, the, the, the slave woman and the free woman and Sarah and Hagar, and we read that, and there's a prefigurement in the Old Testament, and we see it fulfilled in the New Testament. Um, I, was th I was thinking about storytelling, right? You're going to be upset with me if I can't pre pull these things together and have projected to you that I was promising you <laughs> that we're going to go from the tarot cards to Revelation, and it would all be seamless, and I would get you there by way of my narration here and that would be satisfying right i think obviously that's that's what's very satisfying constantly when we're we're in the meme world and you can put you can, memes only work because you have some kind of pre-image and this disrupts it or fulfills it or operates on it it has to be in this relational context otherwise it has no meaning if it's simply random and there's this one picture and this caption it doesn't mean anything it's it it needs to have this feeling of of prefiguration and fulfillment over and over and over again. What? 
She is the good witch regarding Wizard of Oz. I'm always the good witch, right? But I'm Granny Weatherwax mostly because <laughs> I do the things that everybody else doesn't want to do. And I stand up for the pro, you know, the, the people in the, in the context that is hard to do and, and they end up disliking you. But you were there when you were needed. That's, that's my, my hope, right? Okay, so I'm getting to this, the psychology of, in storytelling, we know that we need to have, if there's a gun on the man, oh, that, that I remembered, that um, if you read the Dark Herald's review of the not-so-great game Rings of Power, uh, he linked to an uh, excellent review that John C. Wright did of Philip Pullman's terrible series. <laughs> and, um, and John C. Wright is talking in that review of Pullman's Dark Materials about how frustrating it is for Pullman to have set up a story and then failed his readers completely in the fulfillment. Now, we expect in our Christian understanding for God's, you know, God's revelation to be truthful and for our lives to be meaningful in the way in which we have been shown and that we find ourselves fulfilled and finding ourselves in this story. We are in this story. It's, it's what Augustine says to Deo Gratias when he's trying to teach him how to be um, a teacher or catechist, saying you're trying to show the new Christians coming to you how they're in that story too. Right? Mike 1000. We are in the image of the creator and create meaning from disparate things. We're constantly looking for it, right? If we believe that God made all of this, he made, you know, the rocks and the trees and the animals and us, and, you know, we're existing in time and there is going to be, how do we seek for him? How do we seek for him in all of these creatures that bear his stamp as creator? And then we start putting things together. Now, you could say, you're going to pull random cards out here and make me believe these are stories and make me believe that they are meaningful together and that's diabolical because it's a deception because it can't actually show you. We're not very good at telling the future and weathermen need to get another job because they're playing with demons. <laughs> Any weathermen out there, you're, you're now worried, right? It's like, how would you know what the future is unless the demons are deluding you into the, maybe that's why weather, you know, weather reports are only sometimes right. I think, I, and, and this is the, the innocent place that I think the desire to play with the tarot cards comes from, is we are constantly bombarded with more images than we know what to do with. I mean, the, in, in, the, in our journeys in the mosaic arc, our mystical exploration of the electric mosaic, this electric mosaic is the thing that we live in online. It's because um, this is happening online and you guys are here with me online and the the juxtaposition of things if I looked into I also promised and I asked in my poll what would you like me to do and I said you know should I read the news of the day well here let's look at what I stuck in my life my I, I'll go to the top of the day hope I don't get myself in trouble for what I put up today um, who knows what's in my telegram Okay, so of the news of the day, we have Paul Joseph Watson, um, after suggesting that Kanye West's recent statements were proof that he was mentally unwell, former CNN host Chris Cuomo acknowledged that he was taking antidepressants every day. Drugs. Again, from Paul. Um, in a rare moment, Moderna CEO Stefan Bonsell admitted that COVID is akin to a seasonal flu and that only older people and those who have compromised immune systems need to get vaccinated. 
Oh, wait, those two things kind of go together. Maybe I chose them. Did I choose them? Are they random? Um, taking antidepressants, you know, being persuaded to take um, a, a vaccination. A beautiful picture of the ceiling of a place I don't know, but it's got a cross in the middle, and it's a very flamboyant Gothic um, uh, vault. Um, another one, which I liked, these are both from Trad Picks. The Sweetest Heart of Mary Church, Detroit, Michigan, United States of America, which I enjoyed because there's uh, the, the, electric, the electric lighting on the ribs of the vault is reflected in the, in the floor, right? So there's this lovely kind of reflection going on, which is that reflected in that previous vault that I, oh, well, clearly whoever runs Trad Picks was putting these things together, juxtaposing them for meaning. But then we ended up with the Boers of Antwerp, Belgium. Well, I've been to Antwerp, and it's interesting, this financial trading floor is this glorious gallery with, um, you know, the rib vaulting and the, the opening of the floor with big clerestory windows. It reminded me a little bit of the Trump Hotel, which is in D.C., which I have stayed at under happy circumstances, uh, which the floor on that, that hotel is made of the mail sorting um, the the the, re, the area where the mail used to be sorted it reminded me of this boars of antwerp is that meaningful i don't know here we are okay ethers are um the australian he's, he's quoting something else from summit news that the australian government is offering to pay for funerals or those who die from covid vaccines ethers are says that will surely inspire confidence a lot of themes of drug taking and medicine and and then this architecture and hear me pick a card for tonight's live stream, I will do these various things. Um, a, a forwarded post that I made from Carnivore Aurelius. Breaking, scientists discover a technology that turns plants into delicious meat without any factories, synthetic chemicals, or seed oils. And it's a cute little cow, right? At which I post dancing corgis. And then a picture from the library of me trying to find the book on the Visconti Tarot, saying research for tonight's live stream. Ending with, it's good. I didn't post that much today because I was in class a lot of the afternoon. Milo's forward on global antidepressant users per 1,000 people. One in 10 Americans take antidepressants. That's so hard. That's so traumatizing and hard to process. I think I need a Zoloft. Is it meaningful that Milo shared that this, after, this evening when I had posted that thing from Paul Joseph Watson this morning about Chris Cuomo and his antidepressants? Who knows? How do we tell what's correlation and what's causation? How do we tell, and this is, you realize this is fundamental historian's problem, what's meaningful prefiguration and fulfillment? What's meaningful before and after? What's meaningful, you know, structuring of story? We Look for this kind of thing all the time. Because if we can't figure out cause and effect, cow eats grass, grass, grass turns into cow, cow is yummy to eat, we starve. <laughs> you know, the, the, storytelling, the storytelling impulse is always, you know, uh, you're going to paint stuff on the, the cave wall because there's, well, okay, I don't, I'm not sure how useful those cave walls were for, for setting up um, hunting expeditions because apparently the caves were like fairly deep into the ground. But... I'm going to tell you a story about the animal that I saw. And if you come with me, this is the birth of language, right? We'll all eat. 
this 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 need to look for cause and effect is so hardwired into our um, psyche we're going to be doing it and this is the this is the unfortunate you know evo psych argument for why we believe in god because we're like hard hardwired as it were i don't like that i sh i don't know why i fell into talking about it that way um we are um disposed to find faces and things because if we mistake a face that's okay but if we don't see a face it eats us mm, yeah i'm not really keen on that but but there is a god wants us to be storytellers right here's jesus telling us understand yourself in this parable but then the people listening to him don't but then we spend centuries subsequently trying to make sense of the stories let's read another one um find a parable quick there are a lot of parables in luke i, I wanted another john one and my bible is helpful because it has everything in red okay how about this um He's talking about John witnessing to him. There is another that beareth witness of me. This is in chapter five. If you want to follow along. Um, and I know that the witness which he witnessed of me is true. You sent to John and he gave testimony to the truth. But I received not testimony from man, but I say these things that you may be saved. He was a burning and a shining light and you were willing for a time to rejoice in his light. But I have a greater testimony than John, that of John for the works which the father hath given me to perfect the works themselves which I do give testimony of me that the Father hath sent me. And the Father himself who hath sent me hath given testimony of me. Neither have you heard his voice at any time nor seen his shape. And you have not his word abiding in you for whom he hath sent him you believe not. Search the scriptures for you think in them to have life everlasting. And the same are they that give testimony of me. Remember the psalm gives testimony of Jesus and he's telling us through the gospel of the evangelist john the psalms give testimony the scriptures give testimony of me i'm there you need to be able to look there and find me and you will not come to me that you may have life i receive not glory from men but i know you that you have not the love of god in you i am come in the name of my father and you receive me not if another shall come in his own name him you will receive how can you believe who receive glory from one another and the glory which is from god alone you do not seek Think not that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one that accuseth you, Moses, in whom you trust. For if you did believe Moses, you would perhaps believe me also, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? That's, for he wrote of me. Moses wrote of me. Who is Jesus talking about? Did, who did Moses write about? What is it? Who is Jesus if Moses wrote of him? Um, there's a footnote here. Um, He's referring to Genesis 3.15 and 22.18, 49.10, and Deuteronomy 18.15. We have to know how to put these prefigurations and fulfillments together. It's entirely, it's the structure of revelation that we have one image and we put it against another. And this shows us our Lord. I worried about which Bible I read. Um, I'm reading from the Douay Reims. It's the, the um, English translation of the Vulgate. The Vulgate is the translation that Jerome made, and it's the one that's used throughout the Middle Ages. 
even in the Middle Ages, there were it was known that there were multiple translations because there is within the Christian tradition a recognition that all of this is translated for us into human language, right? Whatever God communicates to us, he had, this is Augustine, he had to become incarnate, lower himself into our physical embodied state to speak to us so that we could hear him. But obviously this is all imperfect. Um, you know, we, we, we pray um, to be able to, you know, rejoice with the angels in, in heaven and see God face to face. But now we see him through glass darkly, that glass darkly includes the translations that were dependent on. And even if you have the Bible in quote, the original languages, it's still a translation from God. So if it's in Greek, if it's in Hebrew, if it's in, you know, English, if it's in German, if it's in, I, I, I gave a talk some years ago at the museum of the Bible and the best um, part of their exhibit was, well, it was, there were a lot of interesting parts of it. They start with some Dead Sea Scroll copies and take you through the history of manuscript and printing, but they end with a room that's all of the translations of the scriptures. Christians understand that God is always translated to us through our own inadequate language. It's imperfect. It's, 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 a uh, it's, you know, there, there's conventional symbols, right? So don't, don't be worrying about finding the perfect magical translation that that's where we get into magic. When you think I need this perfect translation so that I'm I'm in, 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 in possession of the purity. It's all impure because it's all through our own understanding. Um, there's a theory that, that Jews have subverted it or maybe created it. The, the particular translation you use, again, maybe um, Kilton and I need to do a long, a long full stream on versions of scripture because the Coptic tradition, the Septuagint tradition, the Masoretic text, the Catholic Bible versus the, the Vulgate with I'm Huarium's translation of the Vulgate that I'm using versus King James. There are significant differences in the in some of the, the, the juxtapositions and stories, but the the primary claim that Christians make is the New Testament is fulfilling the old, and we're looking for that fulfillment that Jesus showed told us to look for. Um any law, mental health pros are the priests of a new order. Yes. Um, when we need real priests, real pastors. Yes. And again, I can, I'm making a lot of promises on the behalf of kilts right now. <laughs> uh, the, 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 the tradition of spiritual, um, training and, and, um, you know, confession in the, in the 13th, 14th, 15th centuries develops as a way of examining the soul. It's, it's better than psychology. Psychology is, is confession without God. So we want to, we want to get there. Um, Casey, it's a real drug-fueled news cycle today. Yes. Uh, the need to find cause and effect becomes the need to control it. That's when it gets magical, right? Exactly. The pharmacy, the controlling, the desire, it's like, I take this pill, this happens, that's magic. That's, that's the desire to be in absolute control of the future. And that's where it becomes, in fact, diabolical in the, in the fashion in which um, Kilton and I have been talking about of the, the descent of the, the angels and they gave us cosmetics and, and weaponry, right? We talked about that last time, that this, this absolute desire for control is always the tell of the diabolical. If you're in, if you're in any situation where you think, if I know this, I will be in control of it. 
then you've fallen into the presentation of the diabolical, which inadvertently gave me the answer to why it was just like the tarot, it doesn't do that, even in the way in which, you know, the carnival readers that you go to at a Ren Fair, or I, I once had someone who is a more serious reader um, talk to me about it. And I, I, um, I'm holding off explaining what I think is going on here for just a, a little second longer. But I think for the most part, what's going on is a conversation between the person with the cards and the person who needs to talk something out, right? I've, I've gone to, in the Renaissance Fair, I've gone to one of the readers there a couple times and both times she told me basically the same story, which was fun the first time I did it because like, oh, you know, oh, I love all these things that she's telling me. And then you realize, of course, skilled readers are there to make you feel better, right? They're, you're, you're basically having a drink with your girlfriend. And they are suggesting things to you and, and watching how you respond. There's, you know, the, ma the only magic in it is, is their ability to, I mean, if, if we want to go in the Petersonian tra trajectory, baffle garb, um, cold call stuff, right? That they're, they're looking for you to suggest things to you, to them, to read about. But there are certain defaults that I think most readers know to start with. Women care about romantic relationships. We do. <laughs> Man, I don't know whether you go to tarot readers. This is, maybe it's mainly a girl thing. And, and you're basically going to your girlfriend and saying, does he like me? Is, are my kids going to be okay? Is my dress look nice? Right? <laughs> and in that sense, they're basically mirrors, right? They, they are trying to give you um, uh, a little boost. And, and I'd say how much, how much of the, the, you know, the paranormal world, how much of the, at least in this, this tarot, all of these counselors that are around the neighborhood, I mean, we have a few tarot readers in, in the neighborhood. It's girlfriends going to each other and saying, what do I do, right? Now, is this more or less diabolical than going to a psychiatrist? Card, Casey, card readers are good cold readers. Yes, I think, I think so. And, and the thing is they have to be, they have to be a, to a certain degree compassionate, right? They're using, they're using the cards to say, and you'll, you'll, you'll play this and it'll say, oh, it's a young man. He seems to be concerned about money. And they're, they're waiting for you to say, oh yeah, that's, that's, that's my son. He, you know, he's, He's in college now and he's, he's worrying about, you know, whether he needs to take a job over the summer to help pay, help the family pay for his tuition. No, don't. <laughs> Probably homeschool right now, right? So they're, they're, they're watching you as you are responding to them, give them hints about what to say back to you, right? Now, they're obviously going to make you happier if they tell you good things, right? So they say, well, you know, this, this card that goes with it um, it seems to be, these are the same suit, right? So this is coins. Coins obviously have to do with earth, with have to do with material possessions, right? It's okay. So, the, you know, he, he, he's worried about his money and, um, you know, there, there's a, there's a strong woman who is going to help him out. Oh, oh, well, actually we were, we, you know, we've, we, we have enough money right now to be able to, you know, give him a little boost and, if we can help him right now, he'll be able to get that job. And, and the, and the reader will say back to you like, yeah, I, th I think, I think that sounds, that, that sounds likely they're helping you make decisions, right? The only reason you, 
<laughs> went to this card reader, probably, is because you were anxious about something and you didn't know how to talk about it. You didn't know how to think about it. If, if that is what's happening, and I do, I do think in my own experience with the, the, the Ren Fair level readers, that tends to be what's happening. They're helping you make a decision. They're helping you talk through something. They are literally not telling the future because they can't. There's nothing that they can say from a random draw of cards that says even as much as the weathermen pretend to be able to tell you about what's going to happen tomorrow. And if you looked at the weather this morning before watching my live stream, you're more <laughs> in fortune telling mode than th these cards are, right? They're, they're to a certain extent, they're, um, they're helpers in you meditating on what you're worried about. Buzzsaw Bear. Rachel, what is the meaning of life? Um, the purpose of life is to praise God. Did I get that from Tolkien? No. That the, our purpose, we are made, the meaning of life is insofar as we are directed towards our creator and thankful, thanksgiving and joy at our being made in his image and likeness. And the purpose of life is to sing those praises with the angels. You've heard it from me. Okay. Um, Bustle Bear, I asked Vox what is the meaning of life. He had a good answer. The, the meaning, the purpose and meaning, the purpose of our life is to praise God. And 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 we are we are definitely made to be singing in joy at the glories of creation. And when Tolkien answers that question, he talks about how he sings the, the Psalms for Lauds and the Benedicite each day. And if you start your day with the with lauds and the and the praises of the creatures, you're in, you're in you you've you are embodying your purpose, which is to praise it, praise God. Um, yeah, Bob saying, "Do Reams is the English translation is the closest to the Latin Vulgate? No translation is identical with the the language that it's translating from, and therefore." To understand the problem of translation is to understand the difficulty of God's communicating with us. When he sends angels to talk to us, but that's already a translation, right? That the medium is 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 there. Okay, so that's what I think the sort of the basic level of what's going on in, in the tarot reading culture is if it's mainly women, it's they're talking to each other about relationships and they're doing it with some cards on the table, but they're they're in fact trying to give each other good advice about how to how to live now therefore if your card reader tells you get married have children homeschool them and praise god you're in a good place right and it has nothing to do with the cards it has it has everything to do with this this interaction that you're in um i do think you know th there will be problems if they're telling you to worship the goddess or you know d d deflecting you from the uh the the, the, the praise of God, but the, the, the desire to put together images and help us think. I do that in my teaching all the time, right? What does this picture go with this picture? And you're trying to figure out the contrast and the juxtaposition. And the scriptures are constantly telling us, put these two images together. The brazen serpent is lifted up in the desert by Moses. And Christ tells us, the Son of Man must be lifted up as Moses lifted up the brazen serpent in the desert. And these two images are meant to give us a kind of understanding that we wouldn't have without them. <laughs> Buzzsaw Bear, you're really... Was 
Vlad the Impaler Godly. That I will leave to another another thing. Okay, so the 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 next thing it's like most of the time the card the cards are laid out and they're laid out in patterns and the patterns are meant to have meaning and you'll have past, present, and future. You could do the Celtic cross, right? It's a cross layout. You'll have you know this is your situation. This is crossing it. This is below you. This is next to you. This is above you. This is before you. This is what you hope. This is what you fear. This is your circumstances. This is the outcome. But the, I mean, proper card readers will always say, only if you, you know, don't do anything. Or free will is always, in all of the study that I've done of the way people think about what the cards are doing, it's basically a meditational technique to make you realize what you're actually, what you're actually worried about. So it is, it's, to my mind, it's like confession. Like if you went into confession and say, how, how would you remember all your sins? We might take prayer cards or you might take notes that you made. Um, you know, how would you think your way through the kinds of things that you're upset about? Well, let's see. Am I doing okay on this stream? A star. Oh, that's nice. So I, I, I guess, right. Have I predicted that or am I going to take this as a way of focusing myself to say, you need to think about the way in which, you know, we're, we're looking for patterns in, in, the, in the heavens, in the medieval tradition, maybe they, you know, they go for astrology, which is a problem. But on the other hand, they also believe that the angels are up there, the celestial intelligences are moving the planets. Is it a problem that, you know, the, the, we think that the, the heavens have an effect on the earth? Hard to say. Contemplations on the tree of world. Maybe one day he'll be writing about that because I know he thinks about this sometimes. Um, what do we do with our fact, the fact that we are in a meaningful environment and we're looking for meaning constantly? Now, the next layer and, and the last layer that I was thinking about is we can take sets of pictures and decide that they have a story. And you will know from what I said about the... Um, evolutionary psychologists and the desire to look for faces and everything. We're really good at just so stories. <laughs> we're really, I mean, this is why conspiracy theories are a problem, right? Because how do we know that those things go together? How do you know that this happened and then this happened and then these people were benefited by it, that that was an intentional series? How do you know, Okay, you're, now you're just in my world as a historian of trying to figure out cause and effect constantly. And, and you realize why I'm a little more comfortable with all of this because I, oh wait, okay, so this series means, let's see, um, um, justice. So some kind of judgment has been in the recent past. Um, we're looking for in, insight and enlightenment through the star. And 10 is a fulfillment number of fulfillment. So emotional fulfillment from doing this, live stream with you guys tonight. Oh, big mountain bear. Does Christ, that mean Christ is equivalent to the serpent? How does that analogy work? Aha, that is the entire mystery that we're trying to explore in Drake Alchemicus. But we know that it is a very, I mean, we know from, from Jesus's reference to that image and I think it's John 3.14, where does John... I should know off the top of my head because it's in it's in our trailer, right? When he says, um, "Yes, I did remember the verse, the number verse, right?" So uh, Nicodemus is talking to Jesus and asking, "How can a man be reborn in the spirit?" 
How can these things be done? Jesus answered him and said to him, Art thou a master in Israel, and knowest not these things? Amen, amen, I say to thee, that we speak what we know, and we testify what we have seen, and you receive not our testimony. If I have spoken to you earthly things, and you believe not, how will you believe if I shall speak to you of heavenly things? And no man hath ascended into heaven, but he that descended from heaven, the Son of Man, who is in heaven. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the desert, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him may not perish, but may have life everlasting. Now that, okay, so those five verses, Jesus is saying, you know, you should know this, Nicodemus, master in Israel, but what if I, I've te I'm testifying to you and you don't understand me. If I'm speaking to you about things that are earthly for us, how are you going to understand the things on the heavenly, in the heavenly realm? No man hath, hath ascended into heaven, but he that descended from heaven, the Son of Man who is in heaven. Now, Jesus is talking about himself as the Son of Man, and he's saying he's also in heaven at the same time. And then this image of Moses lifting up the brazen serpent in the desert, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Medieval images of the crucifixion will often show Jesus all twisty. It's because they're trying to show he is the serpent who's lifted up. He is the antidote to the venom. He is as when Moses lifted up the brazen serpent in the desert to that anyone who should look on it should be cured of the snake bite. So the Son of Man is fulfilling that prefiguration by being lifted up on the cross. He is the antidote to the poison. We know I'm working on a talk right now to think about um, the way images help us in understanding these mysteries. And looking at Bede, who is one of our early um, English commentators, right? He's writing in the 8th, 7th, 8th century. He talked about how there were pictures that were brought from Rome on panels. There are panel paintings that are brought from Rome by his previous abbot, Benedict Biscop. And, and one pair of these shows the brazen serpent and the crucifixion. This is a very ancient juxtaposition. So you have Moses lifting up the serpent in the desert and Christ lifted up on the cross as the serpent and these these two images create meaning together in that juxtaposition um so christ is and and this is the layering of medieval exegesis that i've been practicing you know trying to explain to people for all along that understanding the way they think in these paired images these juxtapositions I mean, this is, to my mind, why when Milo started talking about things and I could see him in his performances, I could also see the imagery that he was using in his costumes. I wrote about a lot about that in his sets and, and things. He was thinking in these figures, which he learned, um, I, I'm, I'm convinced, he learned part, partly from his studies in, in Catholic theology, writing for the Catholic Herald, but also in all of the songs that he sung growing up growing up in, in Canterbury, that it's in our hymns. It's in all of the imagery is in our music. All of these juxtapositions are the, the, the meaning, meaningfulness on which Christianity depends. Christ is the brazen serpent lifted up in the desert. We do not know who Christ is unless we know that he's also the brazen serpent lifted up in the desert. So meaning for us depends upon 
these juxtapositions because otherwise he's he's a man who was crucified under the Romans and we don't know who we don't know who that is. We don't know what it means. We don't know we don't have any referent for why it mattered that Jesus was crucified. Um, big mountain bear. So the serpent is more the antidote, different from the serpent in the garden and the apple. Yes. Well, what's what's interesting about all of these stories is that they get layered over. Um, again, this is one of the big projects that we have in the in the mosaic arc is is helping helping everyone practice seeing these juxtapositions. If you watch our um, intro sequence, and we have the image of the the window, and then the mosaics under the the title phrase has got some pigeons and it's got Chartres and the labyrinth and it goes to the pigeon again and then it goes to um, the books that I have and then the rainbow and the lights and the um, signs and the sun and then the ark and then the ark and and um, I've forgotten what our last image is. It's all of those uh, apses, right? The, the juxtapositions of Christ and majesty in the with the surrounded by the evangelical animals that is the mode of knowledge for christians that that symbolic contextual referencing that makes us practice seeing christ as the fulfillment of the scriptures and that kind of exegesis is what's you know the whole first millennium of christian theology is in that mode it's in seeing the poetic fulfillment of the scriptures it's the scene the psalms fulfilled in jesus that that constant referent and juxtaposition now that is why then we end up with these arguments about whether lucifer is satan it's like it the that you know but christ is also the morning star and therefore the light bearer the twinning seems to be an element of what we're able to understand about the heavenly the heavenly realm the brazen the big mountain bear the the brazen serpent is also the pharmacia imagery, correct? Yes. But but this is the problem. It's right that we're deceived constantly. That the, here's the serpent showing us the brazen serpent. And we get we get it, it's like this the caduceus image that modern medicine uses, that serpents are surrounding that. And yet we should look to Christ. That how do we discern between the fake and the true? How do we see and, and this in our Drake Alchemicus poem is, is very much the point that we have the dragon and we also have the Christ figure. And we're hoping through the poetry to help people practice understanding that, that their mirror image, there's this, this twinning of, of referent and images, which is also why we talk about Israel. The, the, the church is the true Israel. It's revealed in the, in, in the, the story as the fulfillment of the, Israelites wandering in the desert, right? Annie, stories is layered over each other. Yes, this is why cultural creedal tribal coherence matters. Well, this is where we are our stories. And, and that's what, you know, I think all of us in, in certainly unauthorized, but in the, the, um, the, bear, the bear community, in our Arkhaven community, we're learning to think in pictures again. We're learning to think in these references and juxtapositions and reference and that our community is going to be the one that understands itself through these stories. Communities create themselves through their ability to recognize themselves in, in the stories. And insofar as we have a story, well, you obviously, I believe it needs to be this one. It needs to be the scriptures. And to recognize ourselves in those stories is, is what is absolutely critical.
um, Big Mountain Bear, could it be our need to crucify the lower nature? What do you think? Uh, yes, and that that's at another, you're going to have to come back and ask me that in another stream, but um, the, the way in which we are embodied but also spiritual is a huge challenge for us as I, I've been thinking about it. it's like why do we end up why do we end up with all these tests all the time? Well, one because I think Fox is right and he's like we're leveling up. We have to keep being tested. Um, without these tests, without these challenges in our physical nature, we don't become what we are supposed to be spiritually. We're we're meant to be embodied. So the body is not lower. It's it's an element, a necessary element to us. Our lower our lower element is our fear. Our our need to figure out. Um, the, 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 you know, Jesus has told us what the, the story is going to be and we constantly trying to keep controlling it and gear and, and fixing it. The, the, the desire to fix the story, to cheat, to rig the game. Maybe it's not the gambling that's the problem. Maybe it's the cheating and sticking those cards in your sleeves. Um, Casey, this is why comics are actually an important cultural expression. Yes. And this is the, the talk that I'm working on. Comics are... An incarnational art form. They're very, very important. Mike 1000, don't prophets see the signs correctly? Do we see more clearly in becoming saintly? Yes, but then they have the, the problem of communicating with us. <laughs> so the prophets describe what they see, the saints describe what they see, and we may or may not be able to hear them um, because of our own sin, right? And that that's the, the problem of constantly, you know, training ourselves in virtue. We can't fix it ourselves. Don't try to fix it yourself. You can't. You have to pray to Christ. He 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 helps us fix. He he is the one. He is our antidote. But the saints are all, when you finally learn something, think about this the way when you've learned something and go aha and it all seems so simple, that's the way the saints see God, I think, right? And and, and it's just they tell us too. It's simple. It's straightforward. It's exactly what he's been telling you. But we, in our sinfulness, can't get to that because we're always in our own way with our sins. Yeah. All right, Casey, our lower element is our need for control, right? So we're back with the cards. And insofar as, you know, I don't, the thing is, I think God speaks to us through the scriptures. He speaks to us through his son. Um, he probably speaks to us through his angels because technically they're his messengers. Uh, he speaks to us through our own interactions with each other, you know, that we are inspired. I, I think this was actually one of Torba's nice insights recently. We are inspired by the Holy Spirit to witness to Christ. So God speaks through us. Um, whether he's going to give us clues because we pull a particular card out, yeah, that does that does feel a little bit like trying to get God to tell us stuff that He's actually already telling us all the time. Maybe we maybe we shouldn't be doing that. Maybe we should stop trying to foretell the weather. Maybe we should stop gambling with our health in both ways. Um, I think the reason that the cards become appealing is because they activate our our storytelling desire right before before before, during, and after. And that takes me to my, my last um, sort of insight and example, which is the big book, Meditations on the Tarot. Now, this is, this is your homework, right? <laughs> and I, um, 
I know uh, Mel has been reading this and she, she, she's also been the one who makes all of these amazing clips for us. So if you're enjoying the short versions of our streams, thank Mel because she has all the experience doing it for her motherboard um, videos that it's entirely possible to go through the images in the trumps in the in the tarot and find you know spiritual significance in them because they do come out of the medieval european tradition of iconography um things like you know well the magician is the hardest one i don't know what that that picture is coming from but somebody like the emperor right if you want to meditate on the meaning of political hierarchy the emperor is not a bad card to be sort of holding in your mind um, if you want to meditate on the meaning of what did I do justice they've all gotten out of order uh, right there justice right if you want to meditate on the meaning of justice whether we can do another episode on iconography and whether it's helpful to have images in your mind while you're thinking of abstractions right but if you want to meditate on justice that's not a bad card to be um, can, you know just as a as a as a meditational technique that is what happened for this author um uh, meditations on tarot he's actually an orthodox russian convert to roman catholicism valentin tomberg who so much did not want his name his, his own like authorship to affect the way people read his meditations he published it anonymously so they're letters from a friend um, we know now that he was a, a, you know, basically like Dostoevsky and spiritualist in the, in the sense of very interested in the, the importance of wisdom in the tradition, which is much more a feature of the Orthodox, both Greek and Russian tradition than it is of the Western tradition, partly because the, um, the Protestant Bible excluded the wisdom books from its its canon and so we don't in the protestant tradition have things like um ecclesiasticus and wisdom and they're in here uh I, I talked about the 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 aromatic trees in in the last live stream that you get in chapter 24. so the wisdom tradition is a, is a you know solid element of the larger christian tradition and tom Berg was writing very much in that sophiological you know, how do you understand the relationship of God, it's our wisdom to God. And he did this series of meditations, taking the cards as, as kind of meditational clues, right? And what's interesting about this edition is we have uh, um, approbations for it from the Trappist monk, Basil Pennington, who's a Cistercian, Father B. Griffiths, um, the Trappist abbot, Thomas Keating, Thomas Keating is famous because he uh, started the contemplative prayer movement, so the centering prayer based on the cloud of unknowing. Um, there's some that I don't know whether to, I, I, Gerald Epstein, author of Healing Visualizations, not, you know, but he likes it. Um, Antoine Favre, professor for the history of esoteric and mystical streams in modern Europe at the Sorbonne. Um, and Richard W. Kropp, national Catholic reporter. Now, if you're already, you know, if you're already worried about being Catholic, you're already, you may be worried here. What, what's very interesting is that this edition was endorsed by none other than Hans Urs von Balthasar, um, the great, one of the greatest Catholic theologians of the 20th century. Again, we can be in an argument about the strands of modern Catholic theology, but um, von Balthasar did a, a little um, afterward for this. 
and suggest, you know, that there is in the Catholic Christian tradition a place for this kind of image meditations, a place for this kind of mysticism. And to um, make his point, he points to someone whom those of you who are readers of Tolkien and therefore readers of the Dark Herald and therefore care about getting the story right um, should know about, which is Charles Williams, who was one of the Inklings. He's you know, close friends with all of them, particularly with C.S. Lewis. Lewis uses Williams' influence um, in his um, That Hideous Strength, right? which is one of the reasons Tolkien kind of didn't like it as much because it was a little too William-y. But what the, the, the very, like, to get you all tied in here, right? Realizing you're already part of this community, that um, the, the essay on fairy stories is originally published in the, uh, in the volume that's in honor of Charles Williams. So Charles Williams is someone, I don't really like reading him because his stories are a little hard for me in other ways. My friend Barbara Newman, who wrote about the tarot card, liked him, likes him a lot. She's done some good scholarship on him. But he's part of this, this Anglo-Christian fantasy um, tradition of the early 20th century. And von Balthasar refers to him as a, a place to be thinking about what the tarot means, right? So um, he's saying, the right approach is only possible through faith and ultimately through truly Christian wisdom. Insight into this is of decisive importance for a proper assessment of the meditations, a work that many readers will find confusing. The author is able to enter into all the varieties of occult science with such sovereignty because for him they are secondary realities which are only able to be truly known when they can be referred to the absolute mystery of divine love manifest in Christ. He does not in any way conceive of the Christian revelation as some kind of imprint, potential or real, of archetypes, be they subjective or objective. So he's not Jungian, thank goodness. Um, rather, the latter merely form the cosmic material into which the unique Christian revelation finally incarnates. And since the incarnation of divine love becoming human, is the ultimate aim of cosmic evolution. They comprise a round of allegories and schematic patterns announcing this event by way of, quote, mirrors and enigmas. Okay, he's saying the tarot is one method that we use to meditate on the incarnation and to understand the um, incarnation of divine love, the ultimate aim of cosmic evolution. We are, the story of creation is meant for the incarnation. In order to grasp this, a parallel work, The Greater Trumps, that is the major arcana of the tarot, may be referred to, even if it stems from a somewhat different kind of spirituality. The Christian author Charles Williams, 1886-1945, the mysterious and learned friend of T.S. Eliot, C.S. Lewis, Tolkien, Dorothy Sayers, was a profound thinker who likewise pondered deeply upon the magic of the tarot and its deeper significance for the religious life. In an earlier novel, The Place of the Lion, 1933, he allows platonic ideas to suddenly enter in as forces into the phenomenal world. Here, everything depends on how the characters react towards them. One becomes terribly afraid, another ecstatically worships them, yet another is gripped with a desire to possess them in order to rule the world by means of ideas. The last one finds the only truly appropriate attitude facing up to the superior strength of the cosmic powers. He devotes himself in freedom towards the grace intrinsic to their inner being. That in the place of the lion, that's the problem of these platonic responses to the platonic ideas, right? The greater trumps, 
which comes about 20 years later, 1950, depicts the cosmic principles of the tarot, which once released possess a frightful destructive power but solely at the disposal of magic. But ultimately, when confronted by totally selfless love, the negative is banished and they submit to their supreme lord. As with the author of the Meditations, we encounter in Charles Williams a new form of the ancient Christian wisdom, which in the early centuries of Christianity fought with might and main against all forms of fatalism, notably astrology, in the name of the sovereignty and freedom of God in the face of all cosmic powers. The existence of these secondary cosmic principles was not denied, nor that providence could make use of them in order to guide the course of destiny. Here again, the teaching of St. Paul may be recalled, Colossians 2.15, the, quote, elemental spirits of the universe, which were worshipped by many as angelic powers, the principalities and powers, the princes of this world, are recognized as real beings with effective powers, but Christ, having disarmed them, triumphs over them. They go before his triumphal chariot. If you're a Christian, one, you know that those spirits are real, and two, you know that Christ has triumphed, and that my friends, <laughs> is how I tend to think about these trumps. <laughs> Casey says, I think the point of this tarot discussion is there's a lot of history there. There's The thing is, there's a lot of mysticism and symbolism in Christianity that most modern Christians simply are not aware of. And if you catch it out of context, like the brazen serpent and, and Christ, it's going to horrify you even though it's in the gospels even even though it's something that is part of the mystery of god showing himself to us how right how god god is going to show himself to us that i mean and i get to this when i talk in the in the tolkien series that should blow your mind how does the artist enter into his art how does the maker enter into his creation oh we're made in the image of likeness of god what what do we even mean by that so Jesus says to Nicodemus, you know, the, the, the Son of Man has come from heaven and is in heaven. That this, this you know, the sci-fi, you know, science fiction stories get close to it when you're talking about the heavenly plane and the mundane plane and you're traveling between planes. But even that, I think, is um, inadequate to the mystery. It's, it's, it's the eruption of God into the world is revelation. And if you read something like the book of Revelation, your mind should be blown and be horrified. It's got dragons, it's got angels, it's got the cark, it's got the lady in heavens. And the, you know, the artists of this world were completely comfortable with the impossibility of making that um, understandable except through Christ. It's only through the incarnation that any of this becomes uh truly known to us in the in the old testament you see it in pattern and shadow and figure in the new testament in the revelation of the incarnation you see it in truth i've lost track of where you guys were um big mountain bear was tarot more in catholic western history versus ortho eastern i so i talked about that at the beginning it's it's a it's a playing card game in the east, in the sorry in the east in the west it's an italian card game with these pictures um and the divination part is only a modern uh overlay it, it it's 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 akin to 
well, I mean, the scriptures are the scriptures, and that's different, but it's akin to trying to do divination with chess or Monopoly or something like that. It's, it's trying to make divination off of the play of a game. Big Mountain Bear, yes, it's interesting you consider the tarot as a form of Catholic Western iconography. It's 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 to a certain extent, um, it it has things like the virtues and the planets and you know the wheel of fortune and the you know Pope and and the Empress. It's 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 in fact one back in the day one time I was trying to say it's got the same number of trumps as Augustine City of God has. So you could say it's an earthly it's an earthly representation. In this deck, the um the the final trump which I don't have to look for because they're all out of order now. Um, the final trump is different from some later decks. Get your, get your last questions because I'm, I'm, get, I'm getting to the end here. Do you have any last questions you want me to answer? Put them up while I find the last trump. The last trump will sound in a minute. Okay, there's the chariot. There's Christ, you know, the, the, the true the true conquering. And at the last judgment, so that's definitely a, a, a Christian image. Um, these are courtier characters, the face cards. There. So in this in this deck, the the, the sort of top trump is is probably this one, which is the world. Um, in other decks, it's uh, an image of the virgin dancing in the world. It, it looks more like the, the flood image from Robert Flood's macrocosm and microcosm of the, the world system. And um, one of the things that Tomberg does in Meditations on the Tarot is get to a really lovely place where that is an image of the um, Sophia. So you can go there. This is the fool and then the world. So I, I, I have so I've read it. I've gotten into different versions where I've marked that. Um, I think it's it's the degree that it's it's you know the degree to which you are. Um, sympathetic to the mystical practice of looking for meaning that that affects people's experience was it a baphomet necklace what ne I butts are bare i don't know what necklace you're talking about <laughs> casey's saying embrace the weirdness buzzsaw bear it's probably simpler than you think <laughs> buzzsaw bear i don't do anything anyone tells me to well that's fine okay so it's it's both less and more i hope than maybe um the the sort of vulgar version of what mis the mystery is if, if you think about the occult again we've been talking about this in the in the mosaic arc generally the occult is the the pathetic gym crack controlling version of the great mystery that we are in as christians and you can usually, you can tell the occult, the, the occult has a number of, of strong characteristics. One, you know, it seems to involve sacrifice that we recognize as evil. Um, 
it um, is is always about seizing control over circumstances rather than you know praying to praying for our God's will to be done thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven if you if you're in a in a situation where suddenly you know you're you're being tempted with the the, the idea that you can assert your will over things including um, insurance or medicine or <laughs> the weather you you are already in the temptation of not allowing ourselves to live according to God's care and you know I reckon that we all try to take care for the future and Jesus told us not to you know God cares for us so much he's going to clothe the lilies of the field in beauty he's going to clothe us in beauty you know if there's being prudent with your talents but there's also not understanding that you cannot be in control of things if you do anything whether it's with playing cards or the weather report that makes you think that that it's not still in God's God's willing that things are going to happen you're falling into the divination now on in the Christian terms we still do believe however that pre-nominalism that we can understand the world rationally because it's made in, we're rational creatures made in the image and likeness of God it takes nominalists to actually be as um convinced that God can change everything as he wills and there's no science. It's amazing we have science after nominalism, but that's probably another stream. Okay. Okay, the, the bears, the bears, you guys are in your own conversation. Um, I, I, I've, I've run out of things to say about the tarot and it seems like I've answered at least the questions that the chat is, is putting in now. Um, Thank you all so much for joining me. Thank you for taking this journey through the symbolism. Um, I look forward to responses and, and questions and we will have more for you next week on the Mosaic Arc. So thank you very much for joining me. Good night.